0: Our scripture today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. It can be found on page 1760 on your pew Bibles. It says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, of righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Amen. We're coming near to the end of the season of Epiphany, which is the time of the church year when we celebrate that the people of God has expanded from one tiny nation through Christ to the whole earth. It was the fulfillment of some of the most pie-in-the-sky hopes of the Jewish people for centuries. Not only would Israel be released from bondage, but people from every nation in the world would actually come and worship her God, the God of a tiny backwater nation that lacked any power at all would actually become the God of the whole earth. And all this happened even more remarkably without the shedding of any blood except the blood of Israel's Messiah and of his, her martyrs. People from every tribe and nation submitted themselves to Israel's king because he was crucified on the cross. God has been faithful to his people in ways that not even the most devout Jews could have expected. This, to me, is one of the strongest proofs that there is a God and that he has blessed this church as his instrument in this world. Because the gospel is a message that the God of some backwater nation has anointed a man who died a humiliating death and he's anointed him the king of the world, right in the middle of an all-powerful empire like Rome. How else could that message take root? Now, as good as this news was for Israel, it was even better news for the rest of the world. Now, God was offering full membership to the people of God for peoples and ethnicities that had barely ever been heard of God. All the pe- benefits of being God's people were on to far-off people, and they were grafted into the story of Israel. God would be these people's God, and these people would be God's people just as much as Israel was. They never tried to obey the Torah, but even so, they would be allowed to be God's people just as a free gift. They were allowed to be fully people of God, and they didn't do a lick to deserve it. Before, when Gentiles worshipped God, they would be treated as second-class citizens. When Jews addressed the God of our fathers, Gentiles would have to call him the God of your fathers, But this wasn't going to be true anymore. Every person on earth would be welcome at the table of the feast of the Messiah, based solely on whether they gave Jesus their allegiance. You see it in our own passage. The Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it. They are going to be called members in good standing in the people of God. And I just can't stress to you enough how unexpected and awesome all of this was. God is good and God is mighty, but God is good and mighty in ways that nobody could have even expected. Now, this is all good news, but the problem is that it meant that the world was changing. Everyone's attitudes would have to change to keep up with it. The kingdom of Jesus has turned the whole world upside down, and now this new people, the church, is left to figure out, what do we do now? How do we live in this new world? Particularly, Jews had to figure out what does it mean to be a Jew now that anyone can worship my God, no matter where they come from and who they are. How do I sit with these same people at church or in communion? It was a source of pride for the Jews to be God's special people, chosen by God's grace out of all the peoples on earth. But if anyone can be a part of God's people now, what does it mean to be a Jew? If Joe Gentile over there can worship my God, but still eats pork and doesn't get circumcised and doesn't act like a Jew, what does it mean to worship God? For centuries, we thought that what it meant to worship God was to be a good Jew, so now what? You can see how this would lead to an identity crisis, even though it was a reaction to the greatest news imaginable. Now, the same thing would have been true for many Gentiles. This letter was addressed to Rome, the seat of one of the greatest empires of all time, Many Romans were proud of their ethnic heritage, and not without good reason. How many cultures could say that they conquered the entire known world? They live under the power, one of the rule of the powerful Caesars, whose armies could crush anyone who dissented. Many of them probably found employment building some of the monuments to Caesar in Rome. But now they're being called to worship the god of Judea, a tiny backwater troublemaking province. It had to have felt weird. They were, so, they were so used to hailing Caesar as their emperor, but now they had to give their allegiance to a king who was crucified on a Roman cross. And they had to imagine a completely different kind of power and a different, completely different kind of pride. What does it mean to be a Roman who worships the Jewish Messiah? You can imagine that this would be a huge shot to their system. And now, through all of this, these two people, that were each going through their own identity crises, had to live together in peace. Jews and Gentiles were about to fight a bloody war in Judea. But God was calling them to represent a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of peace by living together in Rome. You can see why this was a difficult task. And then part of why we can see it is because we live in a really similar situation this community has radically changed over the last 60 years. There's been a lot of immigration, so that our community reflects an incredible number of different cultures. I grew up in Frederick, Maryland, which is a very cosmopolitan area, but this area is far more diverse than anything I had previously experienced. This is good news, but it's also challenging news. How do you live in a community with tons of people who don't think or talk like you do? Sometimes we paper over that difficulty by simply saying that we value that diversity, but then we don't actually make any effort to hang out with those people. It's much easier to hang out with people who have the same values and talk the same way that you do. But as a church, we're called to ministry for all different kinds of people, if only because we live in an area with all different kinds of people. Now, our area also looks completely different, too. You'd have to go a long way to find some farmland, This area looks nothing like what it did 50 years ago, much less at the Battle of Drainsville. We have another contentious election this year, and the ways that we organize ourselves politically is turning upside down too. Meanwhile, Christianity is no longer the dominant religious force in our culture. People look at you kind of funny if you appeal to the Bible as a reason to act one way and not another. All different kinds of religions are vying for supremacy, whether secularism, or Christianity, or nationalism, or any of the faiths that worship other gods. All of them have different moral visions, different ways of seeing the worlds, and different hopes for the future. In most cases, you'll get a lot more traction by appealing to nationalism or secularism than you will by appealing to Christianity. Now, we can complain about all this, but it's true. And you can't deny that it's true. Just like in the first century, us Christians needs to come to some kind of conclusions about what it means to be a Christian when the world is turned upside down. We need to figure out how to be witnesses for the peace of Christ when all of the world seems justified in fighting. Now, I think this passage gives us one of the most important ways that we can live at peace with other people when the world is turned upside down. Paul gave us a pretty successful model about how he handled that in the first century, considering how successful the church has been. And that same model can be used today And really, it can be summed up in a few words, to be very, very clear about exactly what we believe at our core. That is the essence of what Paul is doing in this passage. He's making a distinction between righteousness through faith and righteousness by works of the law. Now, we tend to think that this distinction is a wide gulf as Protestants, but it's clear that at the time, the Jews would not have seen that distinction quite as well. If you asked a Torah following Jew at the time, do you have faith in God, they would say, of course, and I express that faith by following the Torah. And the distinction between righteousness by faith and works of the law would have been almost meaningless. You show your faith by being circumcised and staying kosher and celebrating the Sabbath. But now that Gentiles, who don't need to follow the Torah, are part of God's people, that distinction becomes really important. Because now these Jews need to recognize that these Gentiles have faith too, even though when they eat with Jewish Christians, they eat pork and stuff that Jews weren't allowed to eat. Jewish Christians too would need to recognize that they need to have faith in God and not the law itself. Now this small distinction was absolutely crucial now. It was hugely important that Paul would make clear exactly what the church believes. Now we are a church that really prioritizes peace. We believe that finding ways to get along with each other, with other people, is absolutely imperative. And it is. God has tasked us with being a witness to the peace of God's kingdom right in the middle of a global empire. Our situation here in DC is strikingly similar to the situation in Rome. Paul figured that if the peace of God's kingdom broke out right in the center of the Roman Empire, then it could spread everywhere. And the same thing is true for us. If peace can break out right in the middle of Washington, DC, if people manage to talk to each other and love each other in a place known for division, then peace can prevail anywhere. Now, when we're working for that, we often have the temptation to think that having really clear, well-defined core beliefs is going to cause fights. It makes sense. If you say you believe in one thing, you're necessarily saying you don't believe other things. People might disagree, and that might lead to fights. The problem is that is actually the opposite of the truth. Our core values and beliefs are going to come out one way or another, and it's better to calmly confront them and discuss them head on instead of waiting until some urgent conflict comes comes along and we're all stressed out. Being muddy about your core beliefs inevitably leads to one of two responses, both of which ultimately lead to conflict. Now, there's what might be called the conservative response, where you don't know which beliefs are most important, so what you do is you staunchly defend every one of them as if it were the whole of the gospel, as if Christianity and the whole world would be lost if you didn't defend them. Now, I call it conservative simply because it's focused on conserving as much as possible, but also because you're more likely to fall into this trap if you have the temperament of a political conservative. So watch out for it. And I'm using political terms today, not because I want to provoke any people or anything, but because we're entering an election year and there's going to be reason for us to fight among ourselves over politics. Many churches split over it, and they will. But I hope that we can be the kind of church where both Republicans and Democrats can come and, lo- and have the love feast together, to eat together and to love each other, even in 2024. So for instance, in the conservative response, you might get the core beliefs of Christianity mixed up with the beliefs of 20th century patriotism. And you defend what it used to mean to be an American as if that was the same thing as defending Christianity itself. You might start fights over things like gun control or free market economics or American international order as if the Bible itself were crystal crystal clear in favor of those things. Because what it means to be a Christian for you has gotten bound up with a lot of other stuff. Which may or may not actually be right. Then you have a hard time sharing love feasts with people who disagree with you on secondary things, because you have a hard time believing that they could even be a Christian. Those things you fight for might be important things, but they shouldn't get in the way of eating and partying with Christians that disagree with you on them. That seemed to be the response of many of the Jews in Rome that Paul was talking to. They understood what it meant to follow God to be the same thing as what it meant to be a Jew. And what it meant to be a Jew was to keep the Sabbath, to eat kosher, to get circumcised, and generally to act like a Jew. it's understandable because for centuries that was true. What it meant to follow God was to be a Jew. But that's what Paul calls righteousness produced by works in our passage. You see in verse 31 that they didn't pursue God himself or the righteousness that comes from God, but they pursued the law. It's really a subtle distinction, though, isn't it? It's exactly why in verses 32 and 33, Paul calls it a stumbling stone. It's a really easy thing to trip on. For centuries, what it meant to follow God was to follow the Torah and act like a Jew. But really, Paul says in chapter 4, all along, all the way back to Abraham, it meant giving your allegiance to God and putting your faith in him. Especially now to accept the Messiah. But everything is turned upside down. The Messiah has expanded the borders of God's kingdom to every nation on earth, and now Jews have to live with tons of other people who follow God and are just as much a part of God's people as they are. Many of them had a problem with that, but they shouldn't, because what it means to follow God from the very beginning was not necessarily just following the Torah. It was a subtle distinction, but it was one that Paul had to make so that he could be sure that his Jewish believers were crystal clear about what they believe. Otherwise, they would exclude tons of people from the family of God for no good reason. Being clear about what you believe is absolutely essential for avoiding that. But then there's another response to the world turning upside down, which is what we might call the liberal response. Again, I call it liberal simply because it follows the political philosophy of liberalism, but also because if you have a liberal temperament, you're more likely to fall into it. So watch out for it. Some people have the temptation to defend everything around them to the last breath for fear that they might lose something essential. But other people have the tendency to think that nothing they believe is truly essential. It's much easier to go along to get along and not fight for anything in particular. It's a lot easier for people to live together if they have no strong opinions. Now, the perfect example can be found in John Lennon's Imagine. He says that we would finally have utopia. If people give up their most profound and fundamental beliefs to live life in peace. The problem, which I think younger generations are finding out, is that a life without profound and fundamental beliefs is not worth living. Lenin suggested that it'd be good if we had nothing to die for, but if we have nothing to die for, we truly have nothing to live for either. A human being is in desperate need, from the day he or she is born, of meaning for their lives of something to orient their lives around, of something to worship, which is really the same thing. Even more, for a community to live together and love each other, they need to have something in common. It's really easy to live together if what it means to live together is to live in separate houses a couple doors down and only talk to each other once or twice a year. It's much harder if it means caring for each other, eating together, and worshiping together. You need a higher goal that draws everyone together, and if you give that up, you won't have a community much longer. You have to figure out how to live together as a community, which doesn't have everything in common, but does have the important stuff in common. That's the kind of community we already have, and we're trying to build here at Drainsville. It requires us to be crystal clear about what we believe, and to hold on to those beliefs as tightly as God wants us to because we need meaningful beliefs that we cherish, that draw us to something more beautiful and bigger than ourselves, or else we can't form a coherent community and we're doomed to live a meaningless life. If we can't form a coherent community, we can't have peace with each other. In the book of Romans, Paul also had to deal with a lot of people who had that liberal response. Some Gentiles were so happy that they had the freedom to follow God without following the Torah That they flaunted that freedom in front of their Jewish brothers and sisters. When they ate together, they brought pork and other foods that Jews couldn't eat, almost as if their goal was to provoke their Jewish brothers and sisters to anger. Paul had harsh things to say to these people, too. He said simply, You are not walking in love. Your goal should be to build one another up, not to flaunt your freedom, and so tear down what was most meaningful. Because if you tear down love, and what the community was built around, you won't have a community much longer. I also think that this passage was written just so that Gentiles could see and empathize with exactly how difficult this world being turned upside down was for Jewish Christians. What it meant for them to follow God has totally changed. And they had to deal with some really small and new but important distinctions that they never had to deal with before these Jewish Christians would not just get used to it overnight. Both groups were being called to bear with one another on these small things. Learning to live together and eat together even when you don't totally agree. But they were also being called to be clear about the big things. So I pray that we would work together for clarity in our church and work together to define what's essential so that the secondary things don't divide our community. And ultimately, I pray that we would walk in love like these Romans were being called to. It's central for us to love one another in the love that Christ has won for us. And we are outposts for God's kingdom of peace, and we should act like it. So let's work together to be clear about these things. We are working on a tagline for our church that will show us who, who we really are and what our identity is, and I hope that that goes towards that end. But also... Come to Bible study, <laughs> come to church and, and listen to, to what we have to say and let's work together on this we'll, let's have a discussion. because what it means to be a Christian in our society is changing, just like what it meant to be a Jew in their, in their society was changing. So we have to figure this out together, or we'll never really have peace. let's go to let's pray. Lord, we pray for um, those who are first responders and are going through um, and your sirens are going off now. Um, we pray that they would be blessed um, and be able to do what you want them to do and for all those who are in distress. Uh, we also pray for our community. And We pray that we would be um, an outpost for your peace in the middle of this empire and that we would recognize what it means to be your Christians in a society that's changing. All of this we pray in your name. Amen.